Hello and welcome to Talking Teachers. On this episode, we are so excited to have Rachel Johnson, the CEO of Pixel, with us today. I'm really, really looking forward to this chat, but I must welcome my co-host, Oliver Wright. Hi, Emily. It's great to be here. And I am, as always, really looking forward to this. <laughs> We're always looking forward to our guests. We're so lucky yes. to have these fantastic guests that will come on to Talking Teachers. And, uh, and today we've got my good friend, Rachel Johnson. Say hi, Rachel. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome. We're um, really looking forward to speaking to you today because I've known you for nearly going on 20 years or yep. so. <laughs> and... Um, but your kind of route into leadership to where you are now is just a really inspiring story. So I thought we'd kind of just chat about kind of you really as a, as a quite an inspiring person in my life and many other people's lives. And um, but first of all, tell people who you are and what you're doing at the minute. OK, so thank you, first of all, for inviting me. Really pleased to be here. Um, so I'm Rachel and I've been CEO of Pixel now for nearly two years. I started in January 2020, but there's a story behind that, which I might come to later. Um, I am married to Paul and I have three small children who are nine, seven and four. So, uh, yeah, full time job at home and full time job at work. But yeah, all, all good most keeps of the you time. Busy, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not bored. Never bored. No. So, <laughs> I'd like to be sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen you bored, Rachel, to be fair. I think I'd be dangerous if I was bored. I think, <laughs> I think were, people would fear. Um, yeah, keeping me out of mischief is always the best policy. <laughs> so for people listening, you and I, we've known each other for a very long time. I actually was your teaching assistant. You were, yeah. Um, back in the northeast when we worked together and so we kind of hit up a friendship from there and it was just lovely because I actually think probably you might not even realize this but my route into teaching was certainly influenced by being in your lessons and seeing your kind of style of teaching the way that you interacted with the students you know I've got people now even all these years later who still say do you still keep in touch with Miss Rowling because that was your name back then <laughs> yeah. before you were married yeah. Yeah. and they remember you you know so um did you always want to be a teacher always I drove <laughs> my brother mad so my brother is 18 months younger than me and as soon as I was able to talk and walk and do things and he was tiny I'd like boss him around and put him on a carpet and surround him by teddy bears and read him stories <laughs> um as I got older I didn't I didn't give up I carried on going including um his memories I think are different to mine but when he did GCSE English Literature Lord of the Flies I basically taught him the content <laughs> of Lord of the Flies um he got an A star and my mum and dad were like well it's because your sister helped you he's like no it's because I'm brilliant at English literature so I think the writing yeah. was always on the wall really but my parents were both teachers and when I was about nine I decided that's what I wanted to do but I thought I'd be a primary school teacher uh, but I went to secondary school and fell in love with secondary school and my English teachers who I just worshipped I thought they were amazing and at that that moment I was about 13 I decided that English teaching was for me and was set on it from that very moment and never changed my mind so yes I was very determined <laughs> yeah was it an easy route though were you one of those people who sort of went through and did a-levels and then did university and then got a job and it, it all happened smoothly or was it, it a little bit yeah. more difficult 
It's a good question, that. It kind of happened smoothly in one sense. I think anyone looking at my story would say she did GCSEs, did A-levels, went and did, you know, university, PGCE. I did an MA as well. But I think, as with most people, it can look on the outside to be one thing, but on the inside it feels quite different. Um, I, I wouldn't have said that I was academic. I didn't get straight A's. I had to really work hard for what I got. I did well, but I, I wasn't one of the you know, high flyers. Um, when I got to college, I really struggled. Um, and we, I went to a very trendy sixth form where you called people by their first names. Oh, yeah. And I was the kind of kid who highlighted everything, put it in plastic wallets with those. <laughs> do you remember those things that you put around the holes of your lined paper to stop them falling yeah, out those, of your ring binder? They yes. look like a polo. Yes. Yeah. So I bought loads of them and I'd spend all of my time putting polos on the paper <laughs> and highlighting everything and writing everything out in neat. And uh, I got a really bad mark in one of my exams and the teacher called Megan said, Rachel, I don't understand it. You know, why are you, why have you got so such bad marks? And I said, well, that's because, Megan, I spent the entire time making sure my notes are in pretty colours. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and I really struggled. Um, so I managed to get through all of that, went to university, not my first choice, missed that, went to my second choice, loved university, really excelled there, found my niche. Um, then took a year out to work in a school in London um, that had people who were dyslexic and had left mainstream education and were in an alternative setting. So I taught there for a year uh, while I did my MA in, in English literature. Children's Is that literature. where you taught Ron Weasley? Uh, no, that was the next one when I went to Cambridge and did my PGCE and I taught Ron Weasley. Yeah, not, not for long, but I did at his school. He was just filming Harry Potter. Very exciting. And because my, my surname at the time was Rowling, Everyone was like, it's a sign, it's a sign. Um, so that was great. But but doing my PGCE, I failed my maths. And um, at the time, you had to do a, a maths thing. I think you still do. And we had three strikes and you're out. And I failed it twice. And so on the third time, my dad came down to Cambridge. I mean, how embarrassing. And basically tutored me through maths. Because although I'm quite good at maths, what I can't do is tell you how many people are on a bus if 15% get off and 35% get on, how many people are on the bus oh, in 30 seconds with a Rachel, timer. I'm exactly the same. <laughs> I'm exactly yeah. the same. And do you know what? That's so funny because my friend, interestingly enough, I took two times before my third time was passed. I thought, goodness, what am I going to do? I've done this PGCE for a year. <laughs> and yes. I passed my English, obviously. I passed my IT first time. As soon yeah. as it came to maths, and it was because I couldn't do, like, fractions. And my friend just sent me this meme, and I've got it up. It says, how I see math word problems. If you have four pencils and I have seven apples, how many pancakes will fit on the roof? <laughs> yeah. Purple, because aliens don't wear hats. And that's... <laughs> That's like it's my math head, yeah. I got panicky, which was my problem. I started panicking and I started thinking, I can't be a teacher. I've wanted this all my life. And because I can't do this maths quick enough in the time that's given to me with a beeper off in my ear with headphones on, I'm not going to be able to be a teacher. And what will I do? And, yeah. and the weight of that was almost crippling. Um, mm. So I passed it the third time. But I had, you'll be pleased to know, written a very strappy letter to Cambridge to say, <laughs> this system is ridiculous. Yeah. I wanted to be a teacher since I was nine years old. And this maths test is going to stop me. But interestingly enough, when I started teaching, uh, data analysis was one of my strong points. I loved it. Right. So it wasn't the maths. It For me, it was the pressure, the pressure. and the expectation. Yeah. 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 It was interesting because I was actually just having that conversation just a couple of days ago because for some reason I remembered these uh, these tests that we had to do before we became teachers and and I thought what would I have done if I hadn't have passed the third yeah. the third one yeah and you kind of just kind of 
even I wasn't even going to teach maths. No. Like I, I, I didn't quite understand it anyway. Sorry, tangent. Um. <laughs> so yeah, you went to you did that, and so what you you're from the northeast originally anyway, aren't you? Yes. So I what am. brought you back to kind of the northeast and and getting into teaching there? So I'd love to give you a really highfalutin answer, but uh, <laughs> but the actual answer is house prices. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Yeah. yeah. I was in Cambridge and I loved it. Uh, loved being on my little bike with my wicker basket and travelling around buying mm. fresh bread from a bakery. It felt like, like an idyllic existence to me, um, but not when you have to live in a one-bedroom flat and can't afford mm. to like buy milk. Um, and I just I simply couldn't afford it, and I wanted to buy my own house. So I moved back to the northeast. I was I was born in Ashington in the northeast of England, a little mining town, and so. So the northeast was home for me really and so I moved back to Stockton managed to buy my own house uh, which is really what I'd always wanted to do um passed my driving test I'd done that late as well um great story there my, my dad helped me learn to drive I did my test in my own car which which I managed to buy and then he said I'll leave you now and, and off he went home and I realized I didn't know how to get to my house my new house <laughs> in my new car no sat navs at the Days time before sat -navs, yeah. Yeah. yeah had to ask directions from the driving center on how I actually drove back to my my house very embarrassing um so that's what i wanted to do and that's really why i came back to the northeast and the school that i applied to get a job in came kind of really highly recommended i'd known of it as a kid and so i went to work there and yeah and i've never left the northeast since and i'd like to say that's where you met me and your life that's has changed forever my life <laughs> yeah. has changed forever yeah. and i've never laughed so much in a job i have to say we laughed a lot we did have a lot and of laughs my memories of that time are wonderful because of the laughter and the friendships and you know how it is when you start in a job and you're young and you're trying to work it all out and trying to work out who you are you need people who are good people around you and you're one of those people so yeah Aww. that was good for me oh that's brilliant I was going to say, did you have ambitions then of, of moving up through this traditional sort of teaching hierarchy and, and taking on leadership or, or did you have other ideas? I guess I did. I think in, in some level, my my ambition had always been to be head of English. That's what I'd always wanted to be because the people I admired were both heads of English or wanted to be heads of English. So that was where I wanted to be. And I, I wanted to, to be that quite quickly because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to lead. Um, I think because my dad had been a head teacher and my mum was a teacher, I'd been brought up with leadership as a, a kind of a thing. My dad was always reading leadership books and always buying me leadership books. So I remember he bought me one called see jane lead we were talking 25 30 years ago now and it was this revolutionary book about how women could be in leadership and, and how that looked yeah yeah because at the <laughs> yeah. time yeah you didn't see an awful lot no. of it past you know some levels of school so i wanted to be head of english and then that came quite quickly i did that and then i went to be an assistant head and i, I wanted to be a head teacher that was my my aim i guess um i thought i wouldn't get married i thought i therefore you know wouldn't be having children so i just thought i'm going to just change the world of these kids in a school somewhere and then life just changed quite dramatically and so my yeah my life changed and so I am now married with three children and I'm not ahead <laughs> I'm doing quite a different job but still in education and I hope still making a difference which is what I've always wanted to do. You are making a difference. I know you are. We'll we'll get on to the, the kind of um, work that you do now. But since we come to that point where you said, you know, your life changed quite dramatically and the plans that you thought you were going to have didn't happen. And I know why, but you were involved in quite a serious accident, weren't you? Yeah, um, really bad, and, yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk to us about that and kind of how yeah. that shaped the, the, the kind of future for you? 
it changed everything I think really it changed everything at the time and I think it's probably changed most things since really so um I had just met my now husband then boyfriend but we'd only met twice I'd been to his house for a meal and to watch The Wizard of Oz because I'd never seen The Wizard of Oz before shock horror um because the technical a bit as a kid freaked me out and I screamed and cried and hid so I never watched the whole thing so uh, I just watched that and then I was traveling home it was quite late at night about one in the morning and I came off the A1 down a little road and um, lost control of my car on black ice crashed into a roundabout landed my car on the top of the roundabout uh, headlights hanging out car completely totaled um and I thought goodness me I could have died there that is like amazing I've survived it so phoned Paul to say a little bit of a problem had a bit of an accident I'm fine but you know it's freezing out here and my car is completely wrecked can you come and get me so he set off Uh, Meanwhile, a man called James from the Highways Agency had been sent out to check the condition of the roads. And so he turns up, pulls up to the roundabout, asks if everything's okay. I say, clearly, it's not. It's one o'clock in the morning. I've totaled my car and it's freezing. And as I'm talking to him, we both see headlights coming from the direction we had both come from. And I realise the headlights are coming straight towards me. And I can't move because James is in his car in front of me. Behind me is my car. And so I don't know what to do. And so I jump as high as I possibly can into the air and the car hits me, hits my legs as I'm in the air. The car carries on going, takes off James's uh, door of his car, ends up in a ditch and I land in a drain with my legs completely and utterly broken. And yeah. so I guess at most most people at that point would realise that life was going to be quite different. And I did, I knew straight away, kind of this might be the end of my legs really. Um, But I didn't do that. What I did was said, James, can you get my phone? I've just dropped it when I had that enormous uh, (laughs) kind of impact. I phoned Paul and said, hi, Paul. Things have got a little bit worse since last time I phoned. Uh, I've actually just been hit by a car and I think I've broken my legs. I'm not sure if I'm paralysed, but I really can't Mm -hmm. feel anything apart from intense pain. You might need to just be careful on this road. He thought I was joking because he's obviously only met me twice. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say So he's like, things have got a little bit worse. You think you're paralysed. What? Um, so he sets off. And then basically I kind of organise the traffic. More cars are coming. And I'm shouting, the next one will kill me. I'm already paralysed. Um, I call the, my ambulance myself. Um, the ambulance comes and I'm told at the scene that I probably am paralysed. That is yeah. that is classic you though, Rachel, <laughs> of like in a crisis... Like, you know, you should be the, the, the person getting all the attention of kind of needing the kind of ambulance, whatever. Someone should have done that for yeah. you. But that is classic you that you would have wrong. And I remember that day so clearly. I remember the next day because obviously I didn't hear about it straight away. But yeah. then the the next day I got a phone call and saying Rachel's in hospital. And I came straight down and that was the first time I met Paul. Yes. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. hi, okay, hi. And then, um, yeah, but your determination after that event, again, for people who know you, it makes sense. But for other people, it's kind of like, you know, you have a catastrophe, you have an accident, and then you kind of go through the repercussions of that, which potentially could have meant uh, being paralysed for you. But you had this crazy determination, which... <laughs> You wouldn't be told, I'm not going to walk again. No, nah, I wasn't having it. 
no, just wasn't having it. And um, had eight hours of surgery. Paul had to put himself down as my next of kin, which, just in case anyone's interested, is very awkward when you've only been going out with each other for a week um, and they yeah. know none of your vital details. Really quite awkward. Um, so came through that. Was told I probably wouldn't walk again, or if I did, it would be with a stick. And and I had to literally learn how to walk again, like Zimmer frame the lot. I, I couldn't make my legs work. Um, so then we had kind of a series of complete like mishaps. The hospital, when I was discharged, missed me off the physio list. So my physio appointment, this on in, in March, the accident happened, March 22nd. And my physio appointment came through on something like June the 15th. Um, saying we've heard you've been in an accident, you'll need physio. I walked into the physio appointment going, hi there, you're a bit too late. I've learned yeah, how wow. to do it myself. That's so <laughs> yeah. funny. That's brilliant. Though. And so, Oliver, you, yeah. you can relate to that, can't you? Because you've had quite a, a difficult... I totally relate to that, yes. Mm. I, I broke most of the bones in my torso and I was sort oh, of goodness. you know laid out on the floor thinking, I'm so glad my legs are okay. So I've almost had the other half oh. happen. Um, but I was similar to you. I was sort of, you know, somebody said, oh, you might want to phone your wife. And, and I said, oh, no, no, it's all right. I'll just nip to a and and get checked out. And then I'll, I'll sneak home and go into bed and she'll never notice. And I was there with like collapsed lung and broken nearly every bone oh, in my torso. goodness me. And you just, you just convince yourself it's going to be all right and I'll be yeah. fine, won't I? You two are so funny though. I would have, I would have lapped up the drama. I would have been like, you know, help me. I would have been so dramatic about it. You two are just like, nope, going to get on with it. Watch me walk. Watch me get better. I'd have been the opposite. But yeah, it was, it was so so funny with mine because yeah, I I posted something on Facebook. I think when I'd had this accident and said, oh, you know, I've just had a, a little bit of a fall. And some some of my friends just read that and went, oh yeah, he's fine. And it was only the ones that read to like the third, you know, the second paragraph that was the list of all the things that had happened that suddenly went, wow, that's serious. Yeah. One of the most but yeah, you special just you things, play it down, don't you? We we do because you have to cope with it, I guess. And yes. I, I think one of the most special things for me was news got out. I was obviously in surgery, and then news filtered out of what had happened. By the time the end of the first day in hospital had come, um, the story had got out that I'd been airlifted to hospital in a dramatic <laughs> rescue off the A1, and I was fighting for my life. And uh, yeah. the the sister on the on the ward came and saw me and said, uh, "There's about ten boys sitting in the waiting room saying that they need to see you. They, they've come with yeah. chocolate. I'm that like, who are these people?" Me. And it was all the boys from that class, Emily. You remember them well. Yeah. They'd all gone and bought loads of chocolate and turned up at the hospital. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just beautiful. I had over 400 Get Well Soon cards. I was given a little private room wow. and the cards were all over. And that changed me, I think. When mm. you realise in a mm -hmm. crisis, when you know the rubber hits the road, or your legs do, yeah. um, people's <laughs> reaction to you and mm. the love and care. Like, you never forget that, really. It's, there's something mm. very special about that. And I think that's why mm. it was one of my, my traumatic memories but actually it's one of my most precious because you realize that you are making a difference and that yeah. people do care and that that's a lovely thing to know about other human beings <laughs> so, yeah definitely yeah. no you you had a lot of love and I think it's it's part of your kind of you know I keep talking about this determination that you have I think maybe somewhere in there you were kind of like well all these people are rooting for me yeah. I kind of need to show them that this is this is going to be okay yeah. and because I think there was so much people so many people were so upset when they heard about what had yeah. happened yeah. um and and you know I remember you kind of coming back to school and walking the corridors as if yeah. kind of you know nothing had really happened and you you defied 
science a bit really yeah and there was banners all over saying welcome back miss mm. rowling and the head said that yeah. after it happened um she called an assembly and kind of broke the news and and that's weird when you're in the person who's mm. been hitting you in hospital and then you yeah. hear an assembly's had to be called to kind of manage what people are talking about mm. um mm. you think crikey that's you know teachers have a huge impact just in yeah. not being there i had a huge impact mm. because you know, it's disruption, kids are upset, you know, it's very unsettling for mm. kids to to be part of all of that. But it really focused my mind on who I was as a person, which I know sounds a bit dramatic, but the reality is I'd always, since being nine years old, wanted to teach and had defined mm. myself as a teacher. And all of a sudden I was a teacher who couldn't teach. Yeah. And I had to really ask myself, like, who am I now? Um, there is no classroom, there are no children, there is no syllabus or coursework to mark. I'm at yeah. home learning how to walk. Where mm. is my identity now? And I did some quite serious work, I think, on myself about where my identity had come from and how much I'd put on my status as a teacher in school. Um, yeah, and I had to kind of rebuild it a little bit. And I think anybody who's been out of school or has had to come out of school for whatever reason will have been through the same thing. It is most unsettling. Because teaching and being a teacher comes with a status and a prestige and an influence and a, I guess a presence that is unusual, I think. And to not have that can be quite difficult. It took me a long time to get used to not being a teacher. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's for those reasons, I guess, because you yeah. have an identity in school, Yeah, exactly. You? It comes with a whole lot of, you know, um, character traits and behaviour traits and, like you say, status and... You know, obviously, I don't. I'm not in teaching anymore, and that was a decision I made. But when I did make that decision, for for about probably a year or so after, I it took me a long time, a long time to get mm. used to that. Um, yeah, and so that's how people treat you as well, doesn't it? Because you know, you mm, say yes. you're a teacher, and people can identify with that, and they know what that means. Whereas mm, you say, yeah, you yeah. Know, I work in education, or it, it's mm. something a little bit more vague, and you can see people sort of questioning, go, well, what do you actually do, and yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Where what status do you have? Whereas mm, teacher just yes. sort of it almost defines you, doesn't it? Sometimes it, completely, and that's that is essentially where I got to, and I made the decision at the end of that kind of four months period when I before I went back to work because I did go back before the summer, completely miraculous really but I made the decision that I would be a teacher whether I had children in front of me or not that there was something about who I was that wanted to teach and to lead and to influence and I just had to find a way of doing that if it couldn't be in school it would have to be somewhere else I did go back and I, and I managed really well at school and, and got promotion after that and, and then moved to a different school um, but I think that looking back now from the job I'm in now looking back that was a really key learning experience for me mm. and if I hadn't have gone through it then yeah. I think I would have gone through it now um, just in different circumstances coming out of teaching and doing something different in education mm. but I did some of the wrestling with myself I think in that period and did that accident accelerate that process for you accelerate the process of kind of moving just, into a different that, direction you know, reevaluating your identity and, and working out who you are and what you want to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was at the time I was in a very new relationship and then I got married the following year. So I think there was all that going on in the background where I was going to be literally changing my name and moving to a different place. So I think that all was part of it. But I think I became less independent during that time because I had to live with my parents. I literally couldn't walk. I couldn't look after myself. Um, I had a Zimmer frame um, and my independence was something that I really prized. I, I, I was very, very independent, loved being on my own. 
Um, in fact, one of my earliest memories of being in that situation at my mum and dad's was saying, I cannot stay here and not get out of this house until I can walk. I just can't. We have to find <laughs> another way. And so I found somebody who we knew whose um, father had sadly died, but had a motor scooter. And I was like, a motor scooter? So basically, <laughs> she brought round this old people's motor thing. Brilliant. And I worked out yeah. if I sat on it and put my Zimmer frame over my head, I could drive around Stokesley and go to the local coffee shops. And so that every was, day... And that was very important would... <laughs> to you. I remember... It was very chap- important. Chapters, yeah. chapters Coffee Shop. Is it Chapters? Yes, that's the one. It's not now, but it was then. That's the one we went to and I went to. And every day I'd make it my mission Mm -hmm. to get up, get dressed, get on my scooter with my Zimmer frame over my head, with my bag of books. And I would drive around the corner at five miles an hour um, (laughs) to the coffee shop and have a latte. And that essentially is what made me walk again. It was all that calcium from the lattes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I, I think that's absolutely spot on because I I always remember you because I, I, I kind of am a, we're, we're quite opposite in our kind of um personality things that we need like I need kind of like lots of people around me just to make sure I'm okay and stuff right. whereas you're very like no I just need to be on my own and I'm happy with yeah. a book and a bath and that's <laughs> yeah, it you know yeah. um if that's me <laughs> and but kind of the determination to get out of your parents house because you can't walk <laughs> and you're going to get out there <laughs> if it, if you you know if you walk again that's that's perfect um so let's talk about where you are now so how does pixel come into your picture if you like okay yeah well another dramatic story you'll be pleased Mm. to hear um so i was assistant head in a school overseeing english um in the northeast of england uh got married carried on doing that job and then wanted to have children and really struggled i stayed at school had my first uh, child uh, but really struggled just going back and, and feeling guilty for not being there And so I decided what I would do is I would, because I got married quite late, I would have my children and then I would go back and then start back on being ahead. But basically I got offered in that period when I'd come out of school to have the kids and while I was heavily pregnant, I was given the chance to do some work for Pixel, uh, writing English material. And I had known of Pixel because my dad had set it up. Um, So it'd been part of my life for a long time, really. He'd come out of headship and had done the London Challenge and Pixel was born from the London Challenge. So I did some work um, on that and loved it, really loved it. And then got more and more opportunities and uh, that continued really. I was very happy doing all of that and led the strategies and led the English team and found it all massively fulfilling. And then kind of fast forward to 2019, we were just at the beginning of looking at my dad stepping down from being founder director and looking at, you know, appointing somebody to lead the company. And at the same time as that, he got a terminal diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis. So I knew that he didn't have long to live. We thought he'd have longer than he actually did. Mm. Um, But he started the process of looking at at appointing somebody. And I knew, I knew at that point, I wanted to lead Pixel. That's, that was, my heart was invested. My mind was invested. It's what I desperately wanted to do, if that's what was right for the company. And so in a timeline that you would never write other than in some kind of awful film, um, we basically started the process of of doing that, of recruiting. Uh, my dad then told everybody that he was terminally ill. And then from telling them, he actually died about 19 days later. Mm. So we had a situation where we had to have somebody step up in that interim period while he was literally dying. That was me. So I was dealing with that and and being at home with my dad and kind of, you know, looking after him and my mum. 
And then um, Pixel made that permanent. So I then was appointed as the CEO on the Monday. My dad died on the Friday and on the Monday I was appointed. And on the Tuesday, I went to Central Hall in London to lead our secondary national conference to tell everybody that he had died, that I was his daughter because people didn't know. We didn't advertise it. My dad didn't want people to think that I was there for Mm. any other reason apart from my own merit. That's been something my whole life. You know, he was a local head teacher. Everyone Mm. adored him. You know, I was constantly Mm. his daughter. He didn't want that to be a thing. Um, and so we kept that quite quiet. And, and then I told everybody that I was going to, to lead the company into the future. And that although there was much I could fear and much I would have to face, I had decided not to fear it and to face mm-hmm. it and mm. to move forward in strength. And uh, finished my little speech at the end of the, the meeting and the whole place erupted. Everyone stood wow. on their feet. Everyone clapped. It was the single most poignant moment of mm. my entire life. Yeah. Um, and I've never been back to Central Hall since. That was the first and last time I've seen people because then, of course, the pandemic hit. So uh, I lost my dad and started leading this company in a very different role, all in the same week. <laughs> and and then faced a global pandemic yeah, while homeschooling three children. <laughs> and my husband got a headship in this period as well. So um, he started yeah. his headship in last September. So, yeah, so lots of lots of drama but um but i'm just so grateful for it all really because i love it i feel very fulfilled and um yeah it's it's a very different route to the one i thought that i'd be taking but i'm delighted to have taken it and so here i am i often think though that that is what happens we have we think we're on some kind of path we think we know what we've got um ahead of us and then something happens Mm. where it kind of shifts our entire consciousness I suppose of what we thought was was happening uh, and and puts us on a different path which usually nine times out of ten turns out to be a better one or a a kind of more you know a a completely different experience but actually works out quite well and it's sad because you you know you had to go through the the grief of losing your dad and I know how well loved he was um you know especially um kind of in the area and all all up and down the country really and the work that he did um so you've got that kind of tie and like you say you know you kind of referred to you know John Rowling's daughter Mm. um but I think people see you as Rachel Rowling Rachel Johnson however they remember you because I always think you're Rachel Rowling (laughs) um um but you you're doing the work you're continuing your dad's work, but you're doing it in your way. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it's one of the things I think that has, it hasn't surprised me because I, I kind of knew that I would always have to be my own person. That I'm mm. not a very good fake yeah. of somebody else or copy of somebody else. No. I, I, I'm dreadful mm. at that. Um, so I knew I had to do it my way. But I think what has been wonderful for me is how gracious and loving and supportive and encouraging people have been as I found mm. my way. Because yeah. when you come to leadership the way I have, in that kind of position under those kind of circumstances, it does take a little while for you to work out like, okay, what is my voice like now in this mm. circumstance? What, how am I going to manage this? How, you know, what message am I going to give? How am I going to lead? 
Um, and I think that that was an important, again, important few months as I just worked it out. And, you know, although I, I loved teaching so much, I did teaching for the influence of working with young people, never mm. for the fame it got you or the stage yeah. or anything like that. I just not yeah. interested. And mm. I'd always said if, if any job that I had didn't work out for whatever reason, I'd be perfectly happy going back into a school. I loved it. I didn't come out because mm. I hated it. Yeah. I came out because I had to prioritize what I needed to be doing at the time. Um, but I think people have been hugely supportive, both people that work with me and work for me, but also people who don't know me really, who've been ever so kind in helping me and supporting me. And um, I think I think that's lovely. And I think I've seen the best of human beings in this period, people who've rallied around and who've you know, given me this encouragement and support that I've needed as I've worked out who I want to be in this role. Mm. And have you missed schoolwork? Or has this just sort of taken you in a different direction that's fulfilled you in a different way, really? Yeah, I think it has. In the early days, I did. When I was just writing material, um, I'd be yes. writing it and thinking, I'm never going to be the one teaching this. And I would really love mm -hmm. to do that. I think yeah. that has changed over time because I still see myself as working with young people, just not directly mm. in a classroom with 30 yeah. of them yeah. or 100 of mm -hmm. them and working through teachers for young people. And so that's when, you know, we through Pixel, we do lots of different things. But when we do things and I see it in the hands of young people and see what it's done for them and, you know, they've got a certificate for something that we've launched that I love that because ultimately everything I do is to try and make a difference to young people. And the job I'm in now is to do that through leaders and teachers. And actually what I have swapped is not swapped exactly, but because I still want that for young people. But now my heart is investing in teachers and in leaders mm. because it's yeah. a pretty lonely job, actually, mm -hmm. being a school leader at times. Mm. And sometimes it's, you know, people need support and need to feel like they're part of something bigger and they belong. Yes. And for me, that the role that I'm in now is around that, is around bringing people together, saying, you know, we're going to fix this together, sort it together, help each other together, because we want to do the right thing for young people. And so that fills my whole life now. And that's mm. and I don't look back because I I can see now the difference that I can make in this role and the difference that people I'm working with are making. And that brings me real pleasure, I think, and, and real pride in what they're doing, not what I'm doing, but what they're doing through doing some of the work that we're doing with them. Mm. Yeah. So if, if anyone's listening and they're not into, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure people would know what Pixel is, but just in case anyone doesn't know the work that you do in Pixeling, how, how that can kind of um, be picked up by anyone who's listening at, that is in, interested yeah, so it stands for Partners in Excellence. That's how it started. It came, as I mentioned, out of um, the DfE and the London Challenge. But essentially, we're a big network of school leaders in primary, secondary and post-16 education, as well as um, quite a large alternative provision um, area as well. And we have some work overseas. And basically, we're there to do three things to help improve life chances and outcomes for every young person because that's important and that is character development as well mm. as help with English and maths. You know, who you are, in my eyes, is as important, if not more important, than what you can do. We need both, yeah. but we don't, I don't think, spend enough time about who these young people are becoming. I think that's crucially mm -hmm. important. Um, the second thing we do is help influence school leadership, both regionally and nationally, and help speak into that space. And then mm. the third thing is to help school leaders be the agents of change 
for the betterment right. of young people mm -hmm. because we have a world that desperately needs changing. Yeah. And yeah. every young person in this country is in our hands. We have a huge opportunity to make a difference to them. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that has to be grasped and it's it's a big part of what we do and it will continue to be, but we focus on life chances and also on outcomes and the two together in tandem. So that's who we are. We have resources and events and networking and lots of things like that that help with all of that. But it's um, it's been going now nearly 12 years and uh, we have people who've been with us the whole of that time. So really special. And if people want to get in touch with you, um, is there a way that they can do that through? I mean, it's pixel.org.uk, is yep. it? It is. We're about to have a new website coming out in September, so that will all be uh, modern. But I always, on Twitter and everywhere else, always give my email address, which is just rachel at pixel.org.uk. Um, I'm an absolute stickler for applying to people in person. Um, we send out a communication every Tuesday to literally thousands of people from my R. Johnson email address. And people respond thinking it's coming to an admin kind of person or some kind of centre. Yeah. And I'm like, hi there, it's me. And so many people write back going, Rachel, is that really you? I'm like, yeah, this is my actual yeah. email. It's not a fake person. Um, but I think that's important. I think yeah. the personal touch, the human relationships is mm. critical to everything yes. we do at in the company and, and everything I believe so if anybody wants to email me directly then that is my work email that um, that just again embodies you as a person because you're so committed and it's exactly what you were saying and it's exactly what I've seen of you this whole time I've known you is you are a teacher through and through no matter what your uh, specific role is there whether it's in a school or not you seek out opportunities to help people and mm. to give you know, whatever you could give them to help them you do and I'm just going to refer to a funny story because we're coming to the end of this uh kind of podcast yeah. episode soon but there's a, it, it, like this this bit if you don't know Rachel right you're going to know a bit more about her after this story because when I say that she goes out of her way right to help people the story of the intruder Rachel <laughs> she, most people, who, <laughs> most people who find an intruder in their house will go through the necessary routes of, you know, calling the police, kind of getting a bit <laughs> frantic about it. Rachel, there was one time where you had an intruder in your house and what happened? Yeah, so I heard him upstairs. I heard all the rustling of the bags as he was getting all my stuff into the bin bags. And so I shouted up the stairs, hello, is anybody up there? And uh, this burglar appeared at the top of my stairs, burglar, you know, balaclava, backpack full of all my stuff, ran down the stairs past me out the back door and so I ran after him and shouted you can run away from me if you want to or you can come back here and work out what you need to do to change your life and much to my surprise he came back so now I'm in the lounge with a burglar with all of my stuff all over the floor offered him some water and some grapes cause that's all I had um and we had a little chat and I kind of said I just don't understand this is not your house you've come in here you've taken my stuff you can have it but I need to understand what has driven you to this point because this is not this is not great behavior and he burst into tears bless him and said that he'd had a terrible upbringing he lived with his gran who just died he was lost he was addicted to drugs he just didn't know what to do with himself and had seen the door was open I was in the garden and crept in so I basically said, well, you've got a choice now, haven't you? Now, in this moment, you can either give me my stuff back or you can take it and you you decide what you want to do. And he started unpacking all my stuff and uh, gave me it all back. So that is, it's probably wow, one of the brilliant. best stories I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I still tell that story now about it. 
because it's, uh, oh, it was it was a bizarre moment. But I think what happened after that was potentially even more bizarre. Which is, I talked to him about Harry. You'll remember Harry, Emily, who had a drug hostel for um, drug addicted young men. Mm, mm. And I told him about Harry, and uh, this guy said, "I'm not interested in that." Left my house, bumped into an ex friend of his at the bottom of the street, said, "Who? who what are you doing now, mate?" And this guy said, I live with a guy called Harry in this drug rehabilitation place. (laughs) So uh, he went up, this guy, Darren, ended up going to live with Harry in the hostel. And I didn't hear much of him. I saw him once in a, I was in a coffee shop and he turned up in the coffee shop and I I welcomed him like a long lost friend. (laughs) And he was obviously really freaked out. Like, Darren, Darren, it's me. It was my house you burgled. He's like, who on earth are you? Um, But then about three years later, I found some men smoking cannabis in my greenhouse. And... um, um, call, I left some leaflets for them first about you know how to get off drugs and left them a friendly little message saying, can you choose another greenhouse, please? But when they refused to do that, I called the police and said, look, I need some help. This is a bit kind of a bit alarming. And when the police came and told me what they'd done about the smoking uh, cannabis in the greenhouse men, uh, they said, are you the woman who let that man into her house when he was, you know, when he burgled you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, you know, whatever happened to him? And they said, oh, he's died. Oh. And really tragically, he mm. had been convicted for a crime that he'd committed before burgling me. He was clean oh, uh, when he's in the hostel. Yeah. And he'd gone to prison and uh, he'd taken an overdose in prison and died. Yeah, what a um, So horrible ending to the mm. story. But the I hope that, well, I know that those few years in between hit my house and, and that were better years for him. And yeah, yeah that's what I and hoped. Ha- and, and potentially had he... Um, not committed that crime before because, yeah, like you said, it happened before, happened he came before. And, and did happened what you, before. you know, and and there's just nothing you can do about that. No. But I think one thing I've always loved about you is just it doesn't matter who you meet, you see an opportunity to help them if they need it and have that conversation. And whether it's you know the naughty boys in school who absolutely mm. loved you, <laughs> like <laughs> you just had this way of being able to communicate with them and get them to listen. And, you know, I still know Lord of the Flies because I listened so well in your lessons. And I'm not surprised, <laughs> you know, I'm not surprised that people learn from you and do continue to learn from you. And I think I just want to say publicly, thank you for everything that you do, whether it's for me or the people along the way. And, and it hasn't been easy for you. You know, drama kind of seems to present itself (laughs) to you but you overcome it Rachel and you that's inspiring you know it's inspiring to see you do it to to see the effects afterwards um and it makes me want to get up and walk even though I can you know it makes me want to get up (laughs) do my thing and walk again because you did it and I think Mm. if you can do it in that in in the accident that you were in then it's possible And, and also just to overcome you know such sadness about your dad and Mm. to to have to face that and keep going is is just wonderful so Mm. you know well done and thank Thank you thank you thank you that's very kind and I appreciate it well listen thank we could talk for ages we could talk for so long (laughs) and 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 you know I want to but I think um we're gonna we're gonna end this episode here but Rachel, keep in touch with us, will you? And and maybe we'll have you on again at some point in the future. Or um, yeah, just just keep in touch and uh, and and good luck for everything that you do. Thank you. Um, and for you and what you're both doing as well. Excellent to support people who um, who need it and are listening to this. I think it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Rachel will say goodbye now, but it won't be goodbye for too long. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Rachel. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Talking Teachers, brought to you by Twinkle SLT. We have resources for all school leaders and SLT, whether you're middle leader, senior leader, to help you lead your school effectively and save time. Check us out at twinkle.co.uk forward slash SLT. See you next time.